Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the 18th Inspirability Talk uh, of 2020. Now, on the last talk we did uh, last week, um, we uh, we were thinking that was the last one this year. But uh, oh my gosh, do I have one for you this evening? This this really is special. We've squeezed another talk in uh, in the in in the final uh, fortnight of of the year, and what a year it's been. Uh, the journey ability has taken. Uh, this year has been a bumpy one, but we've made it. Um, we started 2020 with a lot of hope and ambition and plenty of events to go and attend. Uh, alas, that didn't happen. But uh, thanks to some brilliant fundraising and uh, the stoic support of our nearest and dearest, particularly uh, our friends uh, across the corporate world, but you guys as well for supporting us, we've made it through. And 2021 does look to be uh, a very exciting year. Um, so, uh, of course, as you probably know now, some of our regulars, these Inspirability Talks are designed to keep us all together in the virtual world because we can't see each other as much as we would like uh, in the physical world at Blackbush and, and around the bazaars. Uh, so we've established these uh, these talks to um, bring you some notable uh, aviators and pioneers of aviation uh, and to raise money at the same time. So you can go onto our Just Giving page, Chad will put that up in just a second, uh, and you can give as much or as little as you wish to support this amazing charity, Airability. Um, I'm pleased to say that these talks um, really have gone far and wide this year. So as I said, you know, we've, we've almost uh, hit 20 Inspirability talks uh, this year, and we've had 42,000 views across the various platforms that we stream these. So thank you to everybody uh, for your support. Uh, it really does mean a huge amount. Tell your friends, like, share, comment uh, as we go along. Um, today, I really do have a special guest indeed. Um, and, uh, you know, we've spoken to space shuttle commanders. We've spoken to uh, pilots of fast jets, people in the Red Arrows. Uh, the Blackbird uh, talk, of course, is a memorable one this year. But perhaps this talk this evening chimes with most of us because it's to do with general aviation and it's to do with uh, that spirit, spirit of adventure that I think probably uh, is within all of us who, who embark, uh, you know, uh, in, into a, uh, a life, a career or a hobby of flying. Um, this evening, we're going to meet a guy called Kerry McCauley. Now, some of you may have seen him on the Discovery Channel. Um, there was two seasons run uh, a few years ago now uh, called Dangerous Flights, which uh, followed a group of people who uh, ferry aircraft across the North Atlantic uh, and, uh, you know, looking at uh, how those uh, um, flights uh, materialise, the challenges and, and issues that, that are faced. And we're going to talk about that a bit later on. So you may have heard uh, Kerry's name uh, because of that series. Uh, but Kerry really is, in my view, the modern day Alex Henshaw or, you know, Charles Lindbergh. He's uh, full of courage and an adventurer, uh, a skydiver and um, someone who really, in my view, embodies perhaps what their ability stands for. You know, it's it's uh, just challenging, challenging the fear that's dead in front of you sometimes. Um, Kerry, uh, in 1979, joined the U.S. Army uh, National Guard uh, at uh, 17 years old and became a Huey crew chief uh, and um, did a lot of uh, perhaps that's where his adventurous uh, uh, character was born because he was a winter survival instructor uh, uh, in in North America during that period. Uh, but in 1986, he got his PPL and started skydiving as well in the late 1980s. And it wasn't until 1990, uh, pretty early on in his flying career, that he started ferry flying. Uh, and his first uh, major adventure was from the USA to Lisbon. 
across the North Atlantic. Since then, Kerry has conducted a hundred major crossings of the North Atlantic in 50 aircraft types, ending up in, in 60 countries. And the only continent he hasn't been to is Antarctica. And he tells me that's on his bucket list as well. Um, he's crashed once, but it wasn't his fault. He wasn't flying. Um, in 2014, we uh, would have seen him on our screens. That's when the first series of uh, Dangerous Flights was aired. He's one of the main characters. He also uh, featured his daughter in one of the trips as well. Um, and uh, you can still see some of the uh, really interesting programs that were aired in that series on, on YouTube if you go searching for it. Um, he's also, as I said, a skydiver. Kerry's got 20,000 jumps uh, uh, to his credit and has used his emergency chute 26 times. Uh, he runs his own skydiving school uh, near Minneapolis. Uh, it's called the Skydive Twin Cities Centre. So if anyone is near uh, Chicago or Minneapolis, then, uh, you know, maybe drop in and uh, go for a tandem jump. Um, so what an adventure. What a what a life. Uh, and Kerry uh, is definitely uh, still uh, young and has got many years ahead of him. So uh, I would uh, keep an eye out for him. There's plenty more to come, I'm sure, from Kerry. But he's written a book this year. Uh, it's called Ferry Pilot. It's called uh, Nine Lives Over the North Atlantic. So uh, have a look at uh, Amazon for that. Uh, Kerry's going to tell us about that book this evening. And, uh, you know, we've got a week to go till Christmas. And maybe that's a, a good last chance present for some of your friends and family. Um, so without further ado, it's my pleasure to introduce to you, Kerry McCauley. Hey, John, how's it going? Going very well. Going very well indeed, Kerry. And uh, just a real, a real uh, delight to read through what has been a a really uh, interesting life uh, for you so far and um, uh, looking forward to reading your book. I've ordered my copy already uh, and uh, that's going to that's going to see me well through the winter months. But uh, thank you for joining us. Where are you joining us from? I'm actually in Menominee, Wisconsin. It's uh, a little east of Minneapolis, but up in the cold north. Yeah, well, we were just talking earlier on, weren't we, about it's a bit chilly in the UK today, but uh, probably not as cold as it's going to get for you <laughs> where you are at the moment. Um, okay, so Kerry, it's um, it, it's we've got about an hour, so we're going to pack in as much as we can. But you know, my first question to you is, where did all this start? You know, where did this spirit and adventure begin? Um, you know, we we, we I, I mentioned your uh, introduction into aviation as a crew chief. Is that where it began? Can you remember this spirit of adventure? Ah, uh, no, I, I've kind of had that since I was a young boy, you know, in Boy Scouts and doing all kinds of stuff. I was always out in the woods off off by my own, uh, rock climbing, um, cave exploring, climbing trees. It just, my folks could never keep a hand on me. So I've, I've kind of always been out there a bit. Yeah, sure. And, and um, you got into aviation. Now, is that because you had an interest in aviation? Was it, you know, did, did that come about through friends or, or maybe some kind of family connection? Actually, it was um, probably from my uncle, who was a Navy carrier pilot. He was actually well, named after Kerry McCauley. Yeah, he flew uh, S-2 trackers off of uh, aircraft carriers, you know, became a, a captain. And uh, so he was always kind of my hero. And, you know, growing up, like a lot of kids, read everything I could about World War II fighters in my the room, in my my room growing up, the whole ceiling was just a swirling dogfight of plastic models. So, yeah, aviation's always been high on my list. Yeah, no, exactly my bedroom as well. Um, you no, know, it, it is. It's. I guess it, it all begins with, um, 
you know, if you trace it all the way back, it's normally to a family member or an experience or, or, or something. And, you, and then you just grab onto it, don't you? And you just you just fulfill your your interest and your passion. And I think a lot of us in aviation uh, are passionate about what we do. Um, but very few of us, of course, have had the opportunity to do what you've done, which is, uh, you know, what we're here today to talk about. And um, that began, I guess, with your pilot's license. Um, so that was in the 1980s, right? Yeah, uh, 1986 or so. I in 1981, uh, I took a few flying lessons, but quit halfway through. But then I started skydiving, and that was a lot of fun. And I knew they needed pilots, so I worked on getting my pilot's license. And it was also about that time, a friend of mine in the National Guard, who's also a helicopter crew chief, he told me he just got back from Africa. I'm like, what are we doing there? He told me about delivering a plane and the job of ferry pilot. I thought, that sounds like the coolest job ever and I want to do that so I made that my goal um build as many hours as fast as I could so how many hours did you have you know up to the point of your first major North Atlantic crossing I had a, just a little bit over a thousand hours so obviously I knew at that point everything there was to know about aviation no one could teach me anything at that point <laughs> <laughs> yeah and uh, so you must have so that's what four years or so to get a thousand hours that's that's pretty good going so was that because you were flying the skydive aircraft you know every day building up the hours like some tug pilots do for gliding that kind of thing yeah i i really hit it hard you know i flew skydivers continuously uh helped help my friend rebuild his j3 cub and i flew the heck out of that thing uh, my friends and I bought a, a twin Comanche. That's where we got to get our multi-engine time, which we only got a hundred. I only got a hundred hours in that thing before he crashed it. That was the crash you mentioned. That was exciting. <laughs> yeah, I, I I guess yeah. When you get to a thousand hours for any one of us, something something dramatic will have happened, won't it? <laughs> Pretty much. I actually had a lot of stuff happen. I, by that time, I'd already had oh, two dead stick landings and uh, the, the crash and awful airport landing and well, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> stuff happened. So, so you managed to develop your thick skin. You know, you've you've uh, you thought, well, that's not dangerous enough. So you're going to have a have a have a crack at the North Atlantic. So, t tell us the story, Kerry, about you know how that came about. I mean. Um, was it was it through colleagues, friends, contacts? I mean, how, how, tell us the journey that got you to that day where you jumped on that aircraft and, you know, next stop was going to be uh, Europe. Well, like I mentioned, uh, you know, a friend of mine in the Guard, National Guard, his father owned the company. So he was he was a ferry pilot. And, you know, I, so I got my license, got my commercial rating instrument, multi-engine, everything I could. And he he told me you usually need a usually about 1500 hours to get a job with this company. Um, I had a little bit over a thousand when they had a, a pilot get killed in the company. And I, not to be morbid, but I knew they had an opening. And so I hit him up at his son's wedding saying that you need to hire me. And him and the other fairy pots laughed and said all kinds of stuff about some young punk. And what is he, who do you think you are? I can fly over the North Atlantic, but, they took me on and I took, I had the, uh, the real extensive Orient air training, which consisted of 
listening to the boss uh, tell me how many ways you could get killed over the North Atlantic while we drank scotch in his office for four hours. That was all my training. And uh, <laughs> off we went. And the, and the massive paycheck at the end of it. I mean, oh. why else would you go across the Atlantic with one engine? Big dollars, <laughs> huge. <laughs> so, um, so obviously, you know, you had a relate, you had some relationships there, you had a bit of experience, but you know, I, I guess a lot of it perhaps requires your own personal soul searching. You know, is this right for me? Do I want to do this? You're a family man. Uh, um, you know, what went through your mind, Kerry, when you? you know, you, you join the company? Because obviously, if you're going to do one crossing, you're going to do many more. Um, how did you reason with the, the risks and the dangers? Yeah, you know, that's a real interesting question. I actually did do a lot of soul searching. You know, when you first hear about this, you think, you know, how romantic, what an adventure. This is going to be fantastic. You know, I can't believe I get to fly a plane or, you know, across the ocean and around the world. And then you sit down and think about it. It's like, you know, this is really dangerous. They, at that point, the company I was being hired to fly for, Orient Air, had lost three pilots. And so it's not, you know, it doesn't just sound dangerous. It really is dangerous. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I guess I, I, I tried to be methodical in my decision-making process, but in the end, I knew I was going to do it. It really, it really wasn't a question. It was just like, yeah, let's, let's go do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the first trip. What was it? When was it? Put us in. Put us. You know, take us back in time and tell us about that that uh, that period. Well, the first trip I was hired to fly was a Beach Duchess, which is a light twin trainer. Um, I'd be flying myself, but the, my boss is with me in a different plane. But we were going to be solo in the cockpit. We flew mm -hmm. to uh, Bangor, Maine to clear customs. Flew to St. John's, Newfoundland, and landed there in horrible windy winter conditions this was just before new year's and you know up until this point as a non-commercial pilot i mean i had commercial rating but i hadn't really had a job you know as a like car cargo or anything like that so most instrument rated pilots avoid really really bad weather you know you have your instrument rating you're legally allowed to fly down to 200 feet but you, almost nobody ever does and my first day that was you know 30 knot crosswind, night, half mile visibility, down to minimums. And it was like, welcome to ferry flying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Took off from there. And it's the from St. John's, Newfoundland to Santa Maria, the Azores is 1,500 miles. And we took off my boss about 15 minutes ahead of me. And let me tell you when, you, when you take off and you look back over your shoulder and you see sh the, the shoreline disappear and you realize you're way out over the ocean, it's, it's sobering. You're like, holy crud. Yeah. Yeah. And but after a while, you know, you can only be terrified for so long and you kind of get into it. And it was a, you know, a gorgeous day. And I didn't have much to do because there's really no navigation because this was pre GPS. I made this first crossing just like Charles Lindbergh, just nothing but a compass. You know, we sat down with the Winslow law forecast and plotted our course to the Azores. And all you're going to have is a minor heading change once in a while. And after that, there's there's no navigation to do because there's no way to check what your, you know, your progress. And you hope that you don't run into a, you know, unforecast wind to push you off, you know, course or not make it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was going to be a super easy day until my boss called on the radio and said he'd lost his vacuum pump. And <laughs> all of a sudden, hey, he's not, I'm not the one with the emergency. My boss is. 
and yeah. he he circled and let me cut let me catch up to him and because he wasn't really up on his no gyro uh, procedures so we flew formation for the second half of the trip at night in the clouds and heavy rain and that was interesting because no we hadn't practiced that and no he wasn't very good at fair, at formation flying so my first over the water leg was super interesting right down to the wire yeah another low approach so yeah that, those first two days were unbelievable you know i learned so much more in those two days than the whole four years prior it was it was crazy yeah i'm i'm sure of that kerry and you know so immediately um two questions come from that the first is um you know you make a plan you brief you think of all the possibilities uh, that could catch you out, trip you up. Um, and then something like that happens, which you, I suppose, probably hadn't planned for, as you've said. So um, what measures were you able to use to, I guess, reduce risk? And what I mean by that is you've got an HF radio, I guess, or a sat phone or, or you know, other means of navigation. I mean, how did you manage the workload that suddenly found itself on your shoulders well yeah we did have hf radios for communicating long distance sat phones hadn't been invented yet uh, it's possible they were but we did definitely didn't have any yeah. um you know we just had all our survival equipment but there's there's not a lot you can do we we always fly as high as possible um to take advantage of better performance better tailwinds uh, also gives you more time to yell for help if something goes wrong or fix a problem in the air. Mm. But, you know, it was kind of, you've got ferry tanks in the plane, you know, they're big tanks that you mount inside the plane to give you the extra range and you've got to keep track of your fuel burn and, you know, all the stuff like that in engine instruments. But, you know, you get to a point, especially once you pass the point of no return, that a lot of the decision making process is gone. I mean, you're, you're committed. You're out there. There's, there's only one, one possible, well, two possible outcomes. One, be successful, find the island, land and have dinner. And the other one, spend the rest of the night in the raft or yeah. at the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, sure, sure. So when you get to the other side, you see the coastline or you see the lights um, and the wheels touch down. What did that feel like? That was, that was pretty wild. It, you know, the, the first one, it almost didn't hit me because I was in the middle of dealing with my boss's emergency. You know, we, yeah. we were thrust into this situation and almost the second half, I wasn't even thinking about the fact that I'm flying over the ocean. I'm thinking about how am I going to get my boss down, you know, keep him from hit, hitting me while we're flying formation, you know, do the approach and, you know, get through this emergency situation because I was suddenly thrust into, you know, that unexpectedly and it almost overshadowed the fact that hey i just made a 1500 mile ocean crossing and uh, yeah. but but it does say in my logbook a big i made it that's one exclamation point so there yeah. was a little bit of uh woohoo yeah so how did your annual review go with your boss that year pretty well i guess <laughs> he was pretty happy yeah yeah <laughs> no like that. yeah it's it's um it's a pretty unique uh situation to be thrown in at the deep end with your boss I'm, I'm sure but uh so that was the first one of many so you know i guess you felt at the time well this is for me when was the next one i mean you know how how did it begin to uh 
become a routine if you can call flying across the Atlantic a routine. Yeah, I probably had my second trip less than a month later. You know, yeah. pretty much I, I once I'd proved myself, um, I was right in the list with the rest of the ferry pilots. I think we had maybe three working for the company at the time, and they just put my name on the board and kind of started assigning me trips. I mean, they'd ask me if I want to do it, but it was always a yes. I think my second one was a 182 from uh, St. Paul to Rome. And that one, uh, that was an interesting one. Just the, halfway across the Atlantic, the engine just just hiccuped twice. And let me tell you, that gets your attention. Like, Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> what was that? Am I about to go down as quick? Throw the, get the, you know, we're always flying a survival suit around your waist, but put it on the rest of the way, chat down, you know, any information you can. Still no GPS, so I didn't really know where I was. I was about to make a mayday call. And then you just kept going. So like, yeah, you know, that's kind of how it is when you're flying over the ocean or at night, you, you hear things, every little vibration, something is like, was that always there? Um, yeah. And every trip was an adventure. That one I hit icing over the Mediterranean and lost a chunk of my propeller and had, or not propeller, the spinner and had vibrations, got to land at Gibraltar, got to Rome, it just, Every trip is just the most amazing thing you can imagine. Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And, and I, I, I like the way that you kind of brush off, you know, what would be a major emergency and probably keep us all on the ground for a month and, uh, you know, turn to alcohol. But, but um, you know, g give, us, um, give us an idea on, uh, you know, the, your SOPs and, and your you know your your procedures because clearly you've got a you know you, you're part of an organization that, that um delivers a a, a service um so there's obviously some structure and and um some you know well well thought out uh, approach to how these are can these flights are conducted kerry but just give us an insight really in, into what measures are taken to make sure that you know, no, no turn, no stone is left unturned in terms, you know, in terms of your um, survival options or equipment, uh, the navigation aids that you have nowadays in modern aircraft, of course, you know, what, what measures do you take to, to uh, make sure that you get to the other end? Sure. Uh, usually, you know, first we look at where's the plane going and what are its capabilities? What kind of range capabilities? So number one, does it need ferry tanks? Um, sometimes we take the northern route and you can go up through Canada, Greenland, Iceland and forego having the ferry tanks, which can be kind of a hassle. But, you know, there are two 700 mile legs, three 700 mile legs in the northern route. And that's right at the limit of most airplanes normal range. So if you decide not to have ferry tanks, you're kind of pushing it because you don't have a lot of reserve, which when you're flying over the ocean, fuel is life. Yeah. Um, then, you know, you look at. Are there any countries we need uh, visas for, overflight permits, stuff like that? You know, get that stuff in the process. Uh, maps, you know, these days it's so simple. You have four flight, put it, you know, get all the maps on your on your iPad and it's a piece of cake and you hold it in one little thing, you know. Back in the 90s, it was a cardboard box filled with maps and approach plates. And most of the time they were all out of date because we didn't have the internet back then. You didn't, you couldn't order things very easily. So if you had a trip next week, there's no way you could get current charts. You just dug yeah. through the, the pile in the office and found the best you could and dealt with it. Yeah. Um, 
survival gear is very is one of the big things for me. I've always been kind of a survival nut, you know. Even from Boy Scouts, you know, I was always camping in the woods and tr reading about wilderness survival and stuff. So when I'm ferry flying, I customize my survival kit to the terrain I'm going to be flying over. But a lot of times that can be really hard because multiple terrains. Like if I'm taking a trip from St. Paul to Tanzania, I have to start by flying over the Northern Canadian wilderness, you know, so the, the boreal forest, I got to have survival for that. Then I got to have Arctic or ocean survival. I need my raft survival suit. Um, pen I don't use flares anymore because I can't get them home. Now I use a laser, my e handheld radio, then I got to be able to survive and raft, obviously. Then I got to be able to survive the yeah. Arctic because I'm flying over the ice cap in Greenland. Yeah. And from there, I fly down. I'm going to fly over the Sahara. So I need desert survival equipment. And finally, I'll f be flying over a thousand miles of jungle. So I need jungle survival equipment. So I'm pretty survival is number one on my list as far as stuff I need to take. Sure. But but it, it's hard because you can't you can't have a huge survival kit because you'll never get out of the plane with it. Yeah, especially if you itch, you know, you've yeah. got to you got to keep it tight and try to get out with at least your raft. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I've got uh, you know, I've, I've got friends in the Air Force. They've they've gone over the Atlantic and they've had a, a maritime patrol aircraft follow them or they've they've had uh, the luxury of having someone, you know, by their side, metaphorically. But they, they, they've had a far more uh, far more options, should we say. Um, in the flight planning process, Kerry, uh, you know, back in the day, clearly, you know, there was uh, a, a huge amount of uh, trust, um, I guess, placed upon your own ability to flight plan and make the decision to go. Um, but in the aircraft that you're flying, um, because of limited range, because of limited ceiling, I guess, you know, if you find weather, you can't get above it perhaps some of the time, most of the time. Uh, and because of the range, you know, if, if the winds are particularly unfriendly, you're going to have your point of no return, you know, brought forward. Um, I mean, how do you manage some of the in-flight decisions that, uh, you know, ultimately mean you're going to make it or not? And then just another bit to that question, if I can, is the commercial pressures. You've got a customer, you know, who's expecting their aircraft. So how, how do you kind of manage all of those unknowns? Well, as far as the decision while you're while you're in flight, it's different now than it was when I started. You know, when when I started and you didn't have a GPS, literally once you were out of range of the VOR in Canada, you just you just hope that the winds were correct because you had no way of knowing if you ran into a strong headwind, and that does happen. I've heard pilots that they ran into really strong headwinds and. You know, you get to a point where you should start picking up the beacon in Santa Maria, which is islands in the Azores, and it doesn't come in, and it doesn't come in, and it doesn't come in. And they're like an hour later, you know, they're still out over the ocean droning along wondering, is today the day? You know, now um, now with GPS, it's a lot easier. You know, you just keep track of your, your course, and, you know, as you approach the point of no return, you have to make decisions. You know, is the weather as forecast? Is my fuel burn what it, what it was supposed to be as I calculated? You know, am I set to go cross that line? Because once you cross that line, there's no turning back. It's just that's just it. Mm -hmm. um, but the second part of your question, customer pressures, it can be real. 
I mean, they're antsy. It, it all, everything always takes twice as long as they expect. So your, your boss will give them an estimate of when they're going to get their plane. And, you know, it takes twice as long to do the maintenance inspection and it takes twice as long to put the tanks in and twice as long to do everything. So almost inevitably, by the time you climb into the plane, you're behind schedule mm-hmm. and the customer is already, always tapping his watch. Like I want my plane. Yeah. And, but most of them are pretty reasonable when you say, look, do you want your plane delivered at your airport or do you want it at the bottom of the ocean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then and then they then they come around to uh, the, the practical, logical way of thinking as opposed to when can they take their family away because they haven't got an airplane. Yeah, I'm sure. Right, right. Um, so you shared with me um, in the last couple of days, Kerry, some of the, the more uh, dramatic trips, should we say. So tell us about this engine out in a Mooney at 19,000 feet in the middle of a thunderstorm. I re- I'm all yours. Tell us. Okay. Well, I was uh, still over the over the United States, which was uh, kind of nice because you got a lot of airports there. But I was on the way to Bangor, Maine, and a big line of thunderstorms is in front of me, and I needed to get through them. And so I kind of turned parallel to the line of thunderstorms that I was talking to center, looking for a gap, and I found one. And I just kind of dove, dove into it, and I was at 19,000 feet on oxygen, and I had uh, my newfangled GPS duct taped to the dash. I thought that was pretty cool. So I dive into the thunderstorms, and I'm listening to music because I was listening to music. You know, I got my Walkman in my headset, you know. And, and just as I'm really in the middle of two big thunderstorms, and it's dark and there's lightning everywhere, I hear this kind of beeping, and it sounded odd, and I turn my turn my music off and I wondered what that beeping sound was and it was odd that I could hear it so clearly because it was so quiet like wait a minute it's not supposed to be quiet it's supposed to be engine noise and I'd lost the engine um I had no idea what what had gone wrong at that point you know I was so busy flying the plane Mm -hmm. uh called ATC said I got an engine out they said oh you know could you give me vectors to an airport with decent weather and they said oh there's not one 40 miles behind you said I lost an engine in a Mooney, and by that count, that leaves me with none. Anything closer? <laughs> so they gave me a gave me a vector to another one, and uh, so I put it at best glide and just started circling. I got out of the thunderstorm, you know, I'm in in clouds. Try to isolate the problem. I had no fuel pressure, and I suspected it was a problem with the ferry tank. The ferry tanks can be very problematic, you know. And I had run the tank dry, but had left the valve open. And the mechanic had told me that shouldn't be a problem. But I closed that and boost pump on and everything. I Nothing was working. So I was pretty much setting up for a, a dead stick instrument approach. And I was just turning on to the final course when the engine came back to life. So actually, I had the engine for landing, but kind of wish it wouldn't have. It would have been a better story if I had a dead yeah. stick there all the way in, you know. <laughs> But the whole town turned out, you know, I had the fire trucks in the sheriff's department. They called the emergency people and I'm sitting there like, I didn't crash. Sorry. But Don't worry. You have enough. You have enough stories, Kerry. Uh, that, that was just one less dramatic one. But yeah. uh, I I have a friend who, uh, who uh, lost an engine in the Mooney um, uh, this summertime, actually. So it reminded me of that. But it's uh, not the Moonies are bad airplanes, great airplanes. But, you know, it's just luck of the draw, isn't it? What cards are you going to get dealt that day? Um, yeah. So so uh, the other one you talked about was um, uh, a ferry system malfunction over the Atlantic. Yeah. <laughs> you remember that one? 
Yeah, I got kind of have a vague recollection of that one. <laughs> yeah, I was ferrying a F-33 Bonanza to Paris. And typically we had ferry tanks in it. And the the, the original planned route was St. John's, Newfoundland, down to the, the Azores, then from the Azores back up to France. And when I got to St. John's, I looked at the winds law forecast and there was a super tailwind cut ripping straight across the Atlantic. And I did some calculation and realized I could make it in one jump, 2,500 miles. But, you know, I had the range and it would save me an entire day, which is good for the boss, save him some fuel, save him some hotel landing fees. And good for me. I get an extra day in Paris because why not? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I took off at night because the winds and loss were great then. And about four hours in, I turned the ferry tank on to transfer the ferry tank fuel from the tank out to the wings. That's how this system was set up. And after a few minutes, I noticed that the fuel wasn't moving. The ferry tank had a sight gauge on it, and the, the, system, the level was still at the top. And it was, it was kind of odd. So I, uh, you know, did the normal thing to turn it on and turn back off again. <laughs> Yeah. Jiggled it around, did some zero-G maneuvers, tried to dislodge anything, but the fuel wasn't moving. And the way those ferry tanks work is there's a ram air tube we mount to the bottom of the plane, a little J-tube forced it, you know, along the line of the slipstream, and that pressurizes, runs a hose up to the top of the tank, and that pressurizes the tank. And when that pressurized fuel then gets forced out to the, uh, out to the wings. Well, I disconnected the, there was a, uh, fitting there and I got my wrenches out and disconnected it and found that there was no fuel or no air pressure coming out of that hose. And that was a big deal because if I couldn't use that fuel, I was going swimming because I was past the point of no return. I'd made my big mistake by not testing it prior to that, that night. And I didn't have enough gas to get back to Canada and I didn't have enough gas to get to even to Ireland I was I was in a fix, so sat there and stared at that tube. Thought, how am I going to pressurize this tank? And I started blowing on it, and mm. just I mean, what like an air mattress through like desperation yeah. to try anything. Uh, I couldn't stick it out the window because we had a metal plate on the window and um, for the HF radio. So I started blowing on it, and after a few minutes, I got pressure built up. And I put my thumb over it and saw that I had moved a little bit of fuel, which is awesome. You know, I was like. Maybe, maybe I'm not going to die tonight. Maybe I got a chance. So basically, you know, I did some fuel calculations, which were tough because I was at 15,000 feet. And when you're blowing into a tube, hyperventilating into a tube at 15,000 feet, they kind of get a little lightheaded. I was getting hypoxic. The, get, the cabin was filled with gas fumes because I'd open the top of the tank to check things out and uh, realized I was going to have to blow in that tank, that tube all night to keep the fuel flowing. And so that was my night, eight and a half hours blowing on that tube and moving a little fuel. And the, the longer it went, the harder it was to move the fuel because the airspace in the tank got bigger and bigger. Mm -hmm. So I really, it, it was hard. And my biggest concern was passing out and running the tanks dry because I figured if, if, if I ran the tanks dry, even if I woke up when the engine went out, I wouldn't be able to pressurize the tank and fast enough to force the fuel out to the wings fast enough to get to the engine before it hit the water. So it was pretty much a night of torture um, blowing in that tube. And when I got to Ireland, 
thought that might be a reprieve because, you know, 400 miles closer. But just my luck that night, the all the all the airports in the southern tip of Ireland were closed for low, cloud, low clouds and fog. And I really wasn't in any shape to make a zero-zero approach in a closed airport anyway. So kept mm. going all the way to Paris. Well, wow. that's an incredible story, Kerry. That really is. And, and um, another question um, uh, related to that kind of in-flight emergency. I mean, do you go, do you go to crew um, to, you know, to, to share the problem if these things arise? Because this is, you know, uh, you know, out of the norm type flying. So um, well, what's the procedure there? I mean, do you try and go to crew when they're available? Nope. Always solo. The the name of the game, pretty much, yeah. And the fair, I mean, there's the weight, but it's also the expense. I mean, the name of the game in ferry flying is get the plane moved as cheaply as possible. Safety is actually second. I mean, it really has to be. Um, yeah. You know, the, the margins aren't really aren't really a lot there, but um, and actually, I prefer flying by myself for a couple of reasons. But number one being, I don't have to argue with anybody about decisions. Um, I don't have to calm anybody down if there's things are going wrong. I don't have to. It's one less thing to worry about. I can deal with the problem myself and be like that. I mean, once yeah. in a while, an owner will want to come with, which I hate, but, you know, it's their plane if they insist. And I did get get iced up in an Aerostar over the Alps one day with the owner along, and he was kind of getting very upset. <laughs> and that, that, that didn't make my job easier. That really yeah. made it hard. Because I guess, I guess, uh, yeah. Unless they're actually useful, um, it's another layer of distraction, isn't it? I mean, uh, that was my that, that's on, on this list of dramas, Kerry. That was my next one: the icing over the Alps. So, so uh, how how did that come about? Well, I was flying an Aerostar, which is a fantastic plane. It's the fastest piston twin ever built. It's uh, this particular one was pressurized, de-iced. It was certified for known icing. And I'd landed in, I was ferrying it from Arizona to Cyprus. And I picked up the owner in, in London. And we'd landed in Zurich for fuel and looking at the weather forecast, getting off of, um, from Zurich over the Alps down into the Mediterranean. They were calling for some, maybe some light icing, but nothing bad. And I was maybe a little bit overconfident in the airplane. I'd flown it halfway around the world already and it'd been fantastic. And that, you know, it's got de-ice boots and you sometimes foolishly think I'm invincible. I can do, I can handle anything with this plane. You know, it's a rocket ship. And as we were climbing out of Zurich and getting up over the Alps, we had to, we had to top out, I think it was at 19,000 feet to get over the Alps. We started picking up ice. And at first I wasn't concerned because, you know, I turned the, the the windshield and the props were electric, turned that on. It was keeping the ice off there. Good. Ice built up on the wings, hit the boots. It shedded it really nicely. I was thinking, cool. This is awesome. I just love it. You know, I'm in bad conditions and this plane's handling it great. You know, turbocharged. It's climbing great. But then the climb rate started to go down and down and down and I think what was happening was somewhere on the tail, it, it was getting really tail heavy and real sluggish. I think somewhere on the table, maybe the tail beacon, a big glob of ice was forming. It, it was probably something about the size of a basketball sitting on the tail and it was starting to get really slow and our climb rate dropped to almost zero. 
and I wasn't 100% sure I was going to make the 19,000 feet. And in the end, I actually didn't. I was about 500 feet short, which luckily they give you a 1,000 feet buffer to clear the Alps. But, you know, I was talking to approach and I'm saying, this is probably all I'm going to get. You know, as soon as I get, as soon as I can, I need a descent down the other side into warmer air. But at the same time, the owner is kind of freaking out next to me. And I, I didn't have to tell him to shut up, but I did encourage him to leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. So, so, um, you know, in, in terms of, I mean, they all say, you know, the, the number one priority for any pilot is to know your aircraft, know your systems and have a plan. And you've really, you've flown a diverse range of aircraft types, Kerry. So, you know, all, all one would say at the edge of the envelope as well. Um, you know, what preparation do you do personally? Um, and obviously you got the books, you're going to familiarize, familiarize yourself with the manuals, but uh, I suppose that's probably all you can do in terms of knowing your aircraft, right? Pretty much. I mean, that's, that's one of the funnest things I, like about ferry flying is when I get assigned a new plane to fly, I never get a checkout. I mean, I'll, I'll literally show up. It'll be a plane that I've never even maybe heard of before. Like the Aerostar. He said, well, I said, you need to go to Arizona and pick up an Aerostar. And I thought, what's that? No, no idea. Um, and the reason you don't get a checkout is the plane's already been sold. And so the seller, he has no motivation at all to go flying with you because all that can happen for on his end is bad stuff. You know, yeah. break the airplane, deals off, he doesn't get his money. So he's like, they toss you the keys, say, good luck, ferry pilot. And yeah, you just climb in, get the books out, write down any particular V speeds, emergency procedures, fuel management stuff, and then turn to the page called how to start the engine and start it up and figure it out in flight. Typically, yeah. it'll be half hour half hour yeah. with the book and off you go. Yeah. And, and I guess, you know, with um, with those of us who fly multiple types, you know, you, you end up adopting a, a sort of a standard approach that works for you, regardless of the emergency, of course, peppered with the uniqueness of the aircraft you're flying, for example. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you probably established or have you established your own, um, you know, personal SOPs uh, when you have to uh, try and, you know, diagnose the problem. Yeah, I mean, pretty much you'll, I, I, I'm most concerned with engine limitations and, you know, temperatures and things like that. I do write down the, the particular speeds for the plane, mostly out of because I probably should, but I almost never look at them because after you've flown enough different kinds of airplanes, you get to realize that an airplane's an airplane. Keep yeah. the speed up. You, you can feel it. You you know, you don't need to know what, alt, what airspeed it stalls at. You can feel it when it's getting mushy you know i mean just just fly the damn thing yeah right right now there's a there's a great comment i've got here from our discussion earlier today kerry now i i i would say any pilot who says they've never been lost is either a liar or has not flown out the circuit yet <laughs> now tell us about the time you got lost over africa well i wasn't lost i've never been lost i was momentarily oh, un of my exact location yeah yeah we, we, i say that too <laughs> i was uh ferrying a, a 210 to dodoma tanzania and the last leg was from libreville gaboon which is right on the equator and dodoma was a little bit south so pretty much i was going to fly completely across the whole continent of africa and 
my entire weather briefing was uh, a mimeograph paper of a satellite image of Africa, which infrared satellites. So all it showed was two big blobs of thunderstorms on the west east coast of Africa, and that's it. No winds aloft, no forecast, nothing. That was it. So took off, and I knew I was, you know, the first couple of, the first hour I knew there, were, there was a, a VOR and an NDB, but I knew there's going to be about a five-hour gap in the middle where I didn't have any nav aids. And then there were two VORs at the end of my trip. Um, the whole trip was very, very, you know, low visibility, very high humidity, a line of thunderstorms I had to get through, kind of the normal stuff. Um, but then I started to get to the point where I should be picking up the final, you know, the first VOR to tell me that I hadn't screwed up over the last five hours and wandered off course over Africa. Um, didn't pick it up and didn't pick it up and didn't pick it up. And the time came and went where I definitely should have picked that. And then I started thinking, well, okay, what are my options? You know, I'm headed, I'm headed for the coast. I'll be. I'll get there well after dark. If I miss the coast, I'll fly out over the Indian Ocean. So I need to have a plan. If I can't even identify the coast, you know how far am I going to go? Then I got to the next the point where I should pick up the second VOR. Same thing. No no contact. You know ran the ran the numbers up all up and down the dial trying to find a VOR any NDB nothing. So then it was just you know. Decide do I do I take a left and try to find Nairobi? It's a pretty big city, um, you know, hundreds of miles off course, but I might be able to find that easier than a tiny little speck of town in the middle of Tanzania. Um, that was the big choice, you know. Do I do I hold my head, or do I start messing with it? And in the end, I decided to trust with trust my heading and keep going. But I tell you, that's that's. I was a long time thinking about that and looking at the maps and wondering where am I going to go? Cause you know, if it's cloudy over the coast, you'll never know when you hit, hit the coast and you just fly out over the Indian ocean and tell you run out of gas that night. Um, but the NDB at Dodoma came up, I found it landed great. I was delivering the plane to the mission aviation fellowship, a group that deliver um, provides aircraft support for missionaries. And when I was having dinner with those guys that evening, they told me, I told them that story and they you know, stopped eating. It's like, well, didn't someone tell you? Like what? Oh, those, de- those VRs never work. The warlords always steal the gas for the generators. You should- <laughs> <laughs> A little information I could have used about 12 hours ago, guys. <laughs> Put it in an email. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah, that was, that was a long night. That was a 12 hour leg and no GPS and night thunderstorms. Yeah. Fun stuff. But you were, but you were vindicated. That that's the that's the great thing. And and yeah. um, you know, you've reminded me. There's there's a um, an aviation pioneer in this country. I mentioned it at the top of the uh, the chat here. A guy called Alex Henshaw. Um, and in the 1930s, he flew a, a Mughal uh, to South Africa from the UK. Uh, so you know, obviously, he flew over the continent of Africa um, with you know very limited navigation aids or well, none. Um, and had similar challenges. Uh, uh, the book's called Flight of the Mughal. So, uh, you know, may- maybe uh, pick that up one day in, in, in you know, uh, when you're in a hotel room somewhere. It's an amazing read. Um, so, so let's stop talking about all the negatives, all the, you know, all the problems <laughs> and challenges. Let, let's talk about the magic of, you know, what a privilege. I mean, you know, to fly these aircraft, most of them new, uh, 
you know, over the Atlantic through some incredible parts of the world. Um, you know, what's it like? I mean, it, it, does it all blend into one, Kerry? Are there any memorable flights where it's just gone perfectly? You look out the window and you've got to pinch yourself. Oh, yeah. they And they really don't all blend together. There's so many that have just been amazing. Um, that's what's so great about Fairy Fly. I mean, I do love the challenges. I, I'm kind of a weird guy. I love emergency situations as long as I get through them. <laughs> um, but there's some of the days that you just, yeah, pinch me. I can't believe they pay me to do this. Um, buzzing the pyramids, for example. I delivered a plane to Cairo to Anwar Sadat's son. And as we got, I picked him up in Alexandria. And as we got close to Cairo, I said, you ever seen the pyramids? No. They're right over there. Let's go over there. He goes, you want to buzz them? Yeah. <laughs> so three times, right in between the pyramids, right over the Sphinx. I couldn't believe it. And after the third one, we were just laughing like schoolgirls. And after the third one, he goes, okay, we should get out of here. Even though, even I'm going to have to explain that one. So, <laughs> but I mean, who gets, who gets to do that? You know, I, yeah, I, I like to fly low. I like to do buzz jobs. Um, I've got to buzz right down the Amazon first thing in the morning, waving at the villagers over out over the plains of Africa, looking at Africa, elephants and giraffes. Uh, up and down the coast in that in that aerostar, the coast of Egypt or not Egypt, Greenland. Gre the, the southern tip of Greenland is one of the most beautiful places in the world to fly. I mean, the, the mountains are just very sharp, and you've got the ice cap oozing into a thousand gla glaciers, which break off into a million icebergs, and it's just fantastic. You fly up and down these these fjords, and uh, it's just unbelievable. You know, and what else is great about it is meeting the people. I mean, there's no other way to meet people than what I do as a ferry pilot. Because when you're flying into some small airport and a bunch of just local pilots walk up, hey, where are you from? Hey, I just flew this plane from America. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, yeah, yeah you're, you're, you're the local hero. They take you home. We have You have dinner with them. You make instant friends. You You can't do that as a tourist. You can't go to you know, some small town in France and start hanging out with people. It just, it doesn't work. But as a pilot, you know, the aviation community is so tight. It's, it's unbelievable. And usually when you get the plane to its destination, the owners are ecstatic and treat you like a king. And uh, it's, it's just amazing. I, I love it. That's, I'll never stop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well said. No, that, that's amazing. And, you know, how, how do you, um, so obviously you know, you're going over water and some of these, um, you know, there's a bit of jeopardy there, obviously. Um, so I'm sure your senses are heightened. But if you've got your senses heightened for that length of time, how do you manage that? And, you know, I guess the other question is, how, how do you deal with complacency? How do you manage the boredom? What, what's your, you know, how do you kind of get into the zone on these trips, Kerry? That is definitely one of the biggest challenges, uh, complacency. That got me into a lot of a lot of problems, you know, early on, you know, because after a while, especially when you're young, you know, everybody's invincible when they're young. And you get a couple trips under your belt, it's like, this is easy. This isn't, you know, this isn't hard when it's a nice day. Um, there'll be lots of times that I'll be in the plane on a long leg. I'm reading my book and listening to some music. And I go, like, you know, I should probably take a look at my engine instruments once in a while and see what's going on here. Don't just, it's not an easy chair. You're not in your living room. Come on, pay attention. Um, yeah. So that's one of the big challenges I have. You know, it's the same in skydiving. I, I, 
I jump so much that that's my biggest fear is just not paying attention. I've literally walked out to the plane three times in my last 30 years without a parachute. <laughs> I stopped like, hang on, I'll be right back. I forgot something. <laughs> that's, but that's, that's what I, I really struggle with uh, in flying. I fly so much and so often it's, it's very easy to get into a mindset like I'm just hopping in the car, going to the store to get some chips. You know, it's like, yeah, um, you got to sure. fight that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, um, you know what? I could spend all night asking you questions about about your adventures in the cockpit, but I'd, I'd like to just change gears if I can and just talk about uh, um, your adventures, you know, from the plane, out the plane uh, and landing under a parachute, not with not with the uh, three Dunlops. So um, you got into skydiving around the same time as you learned to fly. Is, is that is that right? Yep. yep. Pretty much exactly yeah. the same time. Yeah, and and um, you know, there's a, probably a few skydivers listening, or those that have done tandem jumps. Um, but twenty thousand jumps, Kerry, that's incredible. Uh, that really is. That is. I'm sure you're up there with those that have uh, spent more time, you know, falling out of the air than they have actually in an airplane. But uh, you know, it, it, that's a pretty impressive um, number of jumps you've done. Uh, probably because you've got your own skydive centre, it's there in your backyard. Um, tell us about how that school came about. And, and what you do there? Well, we um, we bought the school 22 years ago, and it was an existing skydiving school. We we're the third owners, and I'd been a professional skydiver alongside ferry pilot for for a number of years, probably 30 years. I did at the same time, um, and I worked for a couple of different companies. And this school came up for sale. It was close to my home, and I figured, what the heck? Let's let's go. Let's buy that. And I just love it. You know, it's it fits right in with my personality. I mean, originally I got my pilot's license because I was going to be an airline pilot and skydiving was just going to be kind of a thing. But I soon realized when I got into ferry flying and skydiving and the whole semi-cowboy outside of the normal box of aviation world, I just couldn't see myself going fitting into that that square hole. I'm a round peg. I gotta yeah. do my thing. So yeah. yeah, that's what I love. And and um, I'm sorry. I'm gonna have to go back to emergencies and dramas once again because <laughs> I, I I just can't let the fact go that you've used the emergency chute 26 times. Um, I mean, obviously on some occasions that's a choice you make, and other occasions you have no choice. But I mean, what what's uh, Go on, give us a, give us a couple of stories, the memorable ones. <laughs> oh, most of them, most of them aren't aren't make don't make really good stories. The parachute lines are just twisted up, and you cut away and you pull the reserve. But uh, occasionally, yeah. it's something more interesting. Um, I was on an ex, uh, instruction jump with a partner of mine. We had a student, you know, the student pulled his chute, went away. We, my partner and I, pulled our chutes, and then we flew them together to do what's called canopy relative work. Um, basically, we purposely slam our chutes into each other, grab the other guy's lines, climb down, stand on his shoulders, do stuff like that. It's stupid things skydivers do when they get confident and bored and cocky. Um, we've done it many times before, but this particular time he hit me a little too hard, a little too sideways, and his parachute wrapped, wrapped me up. We call it a wrap. And immediately one of his parachute lines wrapped around my throat, cutting off my air, and one of the cells of his parachute went over my head, which so basically I was at 
2,000 feet with my head in a nylon bag and a line with a 200-pound guy choking me on it. And that was the first time in skydiving that I was actually scared, realized, like, you know, I'm really high up and I might die. And uh, so I was able to get my fingers, you know, underneath the the line to give me some breath. And I ripped the pair, the nylon off my head. And I looked down at my partner. He's hanging there looking up at me waiting, you know, because number one, if you get a rap, you got to communicate with the other guy. Don't just start doing stuff, you know. And he said, what do you want me to do? And I'm like, cut away. He can hardly hear what? Cut away. So he chopped his chute, relieved the pressure. I was able to get the whole mess down off and uh, hanging by my foot. And my parachute was still working. So I figured I was going to be the hero. And I'm going to drag his, his malfunctioned parachute. I'm going to drag it back to the center and drop it right in front of everybody. But then it started twisting up and twisting my foot. So I kicked it off into the, into the corn and said, sorry, John, you're going to have to find that yourself and <laughs> save myself. So just yeah. an average average day as an instructor. Yeah. <laughs> well, perhaps all of your, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it, how how your um, your character and your personality can be conditioned by the environment that you, that you put yourself into, you know, um, and m- m- maybe – all of those jumps and all the ferry flying just, you know, made you think clearly. And and that was a that was a question that uh, I think traverses skydiving and, and ferry flying. And that is in the military, uh, as an example, in terms of preparation, you know, ultimately you get combat ready and you've gone through a lot of flying training um, to really become expert at managing the aircraft, managing yourself, you know, planning, priorities, airmanship, everything, it all, it all comes together. And then you learn how to operate the platform as a weapon system. And you're, you're really, you know, you've had a lot of money invested in you and you've, you've been tested and prodded and poked to be the right person to do that job. And then when those challenges and emergencies come and hit you head on, you, you're conditioned to manage those emergencies and those, and those challenges. Um, so you fall back on your training. Um, but you didn't really have much of that to fall back on. And it's almost like you're self-taught, you know, and that's that's one observation that I've got out of this today is, is that, you know, through it, through kind of feeling your way, uh, I know that's a, a fairly archaic way of trying to describe it, Kerry, but, you know, you've kind of, you know, created your own um, expertise in, in of sorts. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree that, you know, it, dealing with emergencies is a skill. And just like any other skill, the bet the more you practice it, the better you get at it. I mean, I, I tell my I tell my students when I'm teaching them or pilots that I'm training, if, you know, if you've got time to panic, you've got time to do something more productive. You know, mm-hmm. and the, the, I started pushing the envelope as a small child, climbing trees and t- making rafts and swimming under dams and stuff like that, putting myself into those emergency or semi-emergency positions early on. And the more I did it, the better I got at it. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a heavy dose of luck, but a lot of it's experience and, you know, just getting good at it. You know, I mean, you, if you stop and think when you presented with emergency situation, if there's a way out, you might be able to find it. But if you just yeah. like, oh, I'm doomed. Well, then, yeah, you're doomed if that's your first thought. Sure. And, and, you know, I've heard it say, you know, you make your own luck and you fall back on your experience. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a good mate of mine who, who once said, you know what, 
I've had all of these flying hours, all of these occasions where, you know, I've managed an emergency and then I've, I've, I've basically cashed in on that experience on that one day where things do go wrong. And of course that's falling back on, on the experience. And I think perhaps there's no, there's not a pilot in the world that hasn't had to do that, you know, just fall back on experience and, and, and manage the situation. And, and, uh, um, that leads me on quite neatly uh, to your book um, because I've just seen we've just ticked over the hour and I know you've, you've probably got a busy day and uh, we could talk all night about this, uh, uh, Kerry. But, um, you know, I think I think those uh, those of us who've been, um, you know, gripped by uh, by your life and your adventures can uh, carry this on in, in your book. So tell us about the book. I mean, was it your decision to write it or did someone say, you know what, <laughs> you really should write a book about this stuff? Uh, a little bit of both. Um, I'd been telling all these stories over the fire at the end of the day of skydiving for years, telling them to friends, and you know they're always saying you'd really need to write a book. And I kind of, even while I was doing, it, I was kind of keeping sort of a journal as much as I could because I didn't want to forget it, you know. And I, I really started writing them down mostly so I wouldn't forget these stories because every once in a while somebody would remind me of something. I'm like, oh yeah, I how come I haven't thought about that amazing thing that happened 20 years ago? So I started writing it down, you know, for the kids to, to pass it on. And then it just kind of took over and got good. And I published it and it's gone way, way better than I ever thought it would. You know, it's, it's selling really well and people love it. Um, it's fantastic. I, you know, I tell you, Publishing your 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 book is almost scarier than flying over the North Atlantic because <laughs> you don't really know how good you can write until strangers read it. I mean, my mom told me it was great, but <laughs> when well, strangers online say it's fantastic, the line makes you feel a lot better versus good stories writes like a third grader. Uh, so. I do you know what? If 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 your mom's like mine, she'd say you've been doing what? Oh, <laughs> it's in the book for, for sure. Me. Yeah, when she read that, she was I was not happy reading a lot of them. Yeah, I, I hadn't told her hardly any of that stuff, and she was not not thrilled. And, and then, of course, she has to endure the the dangerous flights program. But at yep. least it, it happened by that point. Right, she knew I made it because it was on TV. Yeah, and and what was it like? Because you know, um, again, in this country, through our ability and and other other friends uh, in aviation, you know, we've. Um, We've had uh, TV crews around us or around our, our friends and colleagues, and, and they can be a big distraction. Um, how did you uh, manage the job in hand together with the, uh, no doubt, commercial, again, another commercial pressure of, a, of someone following you around and a, and a producer going, oh, can you just do this? Can you do that? You know, and you've got a, you know, you've got weather to chase down and that kind of thing. How did that work? Yeah, well, it was it was difficult. I mean, being filmed every second of the day, it um, it really taught you patience because everything takes twice as long. I mean, even a simple fact from walking from the airplane over to the fuel pumps, hang on, wait, the camera guy's got to run ahead of you and get his camera. It's like, okay, now, you're like, oh, my God, just, you know, it, it every trip took twice as long. And you had mm -hmm. to be real careful, you know, about what you say and who you criticize and stuff like that. But. But in the end, I loved it. I, I just had a, I had a blast. I really loved being able to show people in real life what I do, you know, because most people, you try to explain a ferry flight and they, 
it just doesn't come across. So we'll watch the show. You'll kind of get it. I mean, yeah, they over dramatize stuff, but everything on the show is hundred percent real. Except, yeah. except me running low on fuel in the Amazon. That was the first trip and they wanted to jazz it up a bit. So <laughs> I didn't, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think, you know, to, well, to the layman, you know, oh, what do you do? Oh, I'm a ferry pilot. Oh, that's, that's exciting. But, right. <laughs> but it's for the dramas as we know. Um, well, look, I, I, uh, I've really enjoyed this this chat, Kerry. It, it's really been fascinating and amazing insight into so many adventures, and and uh, clearly, you know, clearly the adventure hasn't doesn't stop here. Um, you've got many years ahead of you to uh, to continue to do what you love. Um, I'm going to turn to some questions, if I may, because there is a whole load of questions, unsurprisingly. Um, so if you'll just bear with me, uh, I'm sure. just going to pick out a couple and Chad can help as well. He'll put some on the screen. Um, oh, here we go. Here's a great one from uh, Andrea, one of our uh, uh, awesome volunteers at Airability, actually. Um, she says, have you ever delivered an aircraft to a war zone, knowingly or unknowingly? Uh, no, no, but I did uh, have to fly over the Congo with my transponder turned off at low level because we were unable to get a uh, overflight permit, and the locals said, yeah, they'll shoot you down. So a little scud run there, treetop uh, tree flying. Yeah, nice. Um, next one here is uh, from uh, Adrian Arnold. Um, as a ferry pilot, which airfields hold the greatest challenges? That's a great question. I would say I have to say Nurse Sasserac, uh, the island, the uh, airport of the southern tip of Greenland, because once you're past the point of no return to land there, you're you're committed. And often weather systems will come in. Yeah, that's there. Uh, weather systems will come in off the off the uh, off the um, ocean and wipe out that airport, and there's nowhere else to go. So your options are go try to land on the ice cap and wait for survival or go out over the ocean, fly down under the clouds and then fly up the, up the fjord. Um, yeah. And I did have that happen to me once. I didn't, I managed to get into the airport, but the airport was closed just so I was getting there. So it was a, uh, it was touch and go. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, okay. Here's one from the flying ant. Um, does the modern technology like GPS, et cetera, take away any of the thrill of sense of achievement of, of doing it, i.e. Lindbergh? You know it does. Um, I've I've got eight or nine no GPS crossings, and I'm very proud of those because that was a lot harder. And now that you have a GPS that shows you to the second when you're going to get there and to within ten feet of where you are, it takes a little bit of the romance out of it. it takes a little bit of the the pride, but I'm not turning it off anymore. <laughs> I'm totally with you on that one. <laughs> I'm not going back. I'm glad I did it, but I'm never going back. Just to say I could have done it. Yep. Um, okay, here's uh, here's one from a good uh, friend of mine, Sam Watmo. Um, what would be your one piece of golden advice for anyone contemplating flying a single-engine aircraft across the Atlantic for the first time? Don't? No, just kidding. <laughs> He flies to British Airways, actually. <laughs> right, right. Talk to somebody who's done it. Don't just don't just go out and do it. I mean, get get some advice. Read everything you can. And actually, not to 
talk about my book, but it's if you I, I I read everything I can about aircraft emergencies. That's part of my training. Somebody has a crash, I want to find out why, so maybe I won't do that again. And I've read everything there was about ferry flying even before I started. And uh, you know, information is your friend. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, great advice. Uh, okay, the next question here. Um, is will we see another season of of um of dangerous flights i don't think so unfortunately um we it was very popular and they were going to have a third season but i don't know if you guys know but at the end of the second season one of our cameramen got killed in africa in a plane crash uh, a real good friend of mine he'd filmed me the whole first year literally flew around the world twice with him but he'd, he'd hired a doctor in a light sport to take some footage of an airplane wreck on Mount Kenya, and they'd stalled in. So Discovery Channel got really nervous about doing that ever again. So there's talk of maybe doing a similar type of show, but I think Dangerous Flights is over. Yeah, okay. Um, so here's a great question. So, oh, it's just popped up. Okay, there's another one. I'm going to read this off the screen here. Uh, uh, you have so much experience. I've passed my PPL last week. What advice would you have for such an uh, inexperienced pilot? That's an awesome question. Yeah. Well, again, I'll, follow, I'll go back to read everything you can about aircraft emergencies and stupid situations pilots got themselves into. AOP has a good one. You know, the there I was stories. You know, you'll be able to see the, the timeline of how they got themselves into that stupid situation. Cause it never is just instantaneous. It's always that chain of events that they talk about. And you never know when that one little nugget of information you get out of some stupid article or out of a book is going to save your life someday. Mm, mm, yeah. Learn yeah. from the mistakes of others. You never live long enough to make them all yourself. Absolutely. Um, now, this is a great question. It's a bit like uh, someone asking you who your favorite child is. Um, most memorable ferry flight? Oh, boy. I think that's going to have to be a 310 from Cairo back to the United States. It was the biggest piece of junk I've ever flown. I definitely should not have done it. It was falling apart around my ears the entire way back. But that's what makes for a memorable flight. I mean problems i don't remember the easy flights they're yeah. they fade away but the the ones where i almost got killed those are burned into my soul <laughs> i bet they are um okay um so we're gonna unless there's any more chat that you can find stick them up on the screen and we'll we'll ask away um but the we're turning to skydiving now um this is a brilliant question and again i think it traverses you know, the ferry flying and, and the skydiving. How do you manage fear? I don't have any fear in skydiving. Um, the only time I get nervous at all is if I'm doing a demonstration jump into like a big city, like downtown Minneapolis to St. Paul or some big into a huge stadium where I might screw up and hit all the fans or whatever. Um, as far as skydiving, I've done it for, you know, I've been jumping for 34 years, 20,000 jumps. My again, my biggest concern in skydiving is complacency, uh, taking it lightly. That's yeah. my fear. <laughs> fear of yeah. not being afraid. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, Kerry, this this really has been a real treat for us all. Thank you so much for for giving your time for us. Um, 
Uh, and, you know, the, we, we are uh, one big family, as you say, regardless of uh, being on the other side of the pond. You know, we uh, we uh, we all love aviation. And I think, as you said as well, you know, it's half of it's the flying, isn't it? But the other half is those that, that come with it, you know, people that share our passion. So so I really do appreciate uh, uh, from everybody in Aerobility and those viewers uh, around the world watching this. Uh, I hope uh, people have enjoyed it. Uh, and Kerry, thank you so much for once again giving us giving us time, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, reading your book. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Kerry. Happy Christmas. Yeah, you too. Okay. Well, there we go. That was uh, that was Kerry. What a guy, a real adventurer and and trailblazer. So um, as I say, I've ordered my book. I'm going to be reading it over Christmas if it gets here, um, because Amazon's very busy at the moment this time of the year, particularly in 2020. Um, but uh, thank you everybody for tuning in. Thanks for your questions. Um, we're going to be continuing the Inspirability Talks into 2021. This is something we introduced really as a measure to keep people connected and hadn't ever thought about the success that it would bring Aerobility and, and putting the aviation community together as a whole uh, in the UK, but again, abroad as well. Um, so don't forget, uh, you can donate, you can support this amazing charity and the work we do, changing people's lives. Uh, and uh, please do come and see us at Blackbush. Obviously, we've got an airfield there. You can fly in and come and see us or come and see us by road. The kettle's always on. We've got a big stash of biscuits and we really would love to see you. Um, so it just leaves me to say now to all of you and your families, have a happy Christmas and a healthier 2021. Blue skies to all of you. And let's hope we can meet up again uh, physically uh, in 2021. So from me, thank you very much and happy Christmas.